So the, the text for the, this afternoon's sermon is Daniel 6, verses 1 through 28. So we will read that now. And then after the sermon, we will respond with the singing of hymn 53, stanzas 1 through 4. So Daniel 6, starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then as Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement and said to the king, and said, came to the agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the perfects and the satraps, the counselors and the governments, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document that it not, could not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had previ done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came nearer and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles in Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set in his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till sun, the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said, O king, or know, O king, that it is the laws of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid in on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, 
Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the mouth of the lions, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. And their children and their wives, before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dealt in in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the time of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The theme for this afternoon's sermon is... The living God saves his servant Daniel from the power of the lions. We're going to look at three points. First, the enemy's attack. Second place, Daniel's faithfulness. And in the third point, the Lord's deliverance. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one empire had fallen and a new one had taken its place. But despite those outward changes, despite the political uh, shifting landscape, the position of God's people remained the same. The Lord, who removed kings and sets up kings, had removed the Babylonian king and set up the Persian king. But while the world scene was defined by politics as usual, God's people remained in exile, facing the same challenges, the same temptations, and the same trials. As a young man, Daniel had to stand firm in the face of temptation to be assimilated into the Babylonian empire. And now, as we come to the story that we know as Daniel in the lion's den, we see that, as an old man, Daniel continued to face the same assault. The tactics being employed by the enemy were adapted to a new situation. The human faces of the enemy had changed, but the test remained the same. And this was where we'll see the enemy's attack. At this time, Satan's war against God's people and his fought were not being fought through the king, but through the leading officials of the kingdom. The Persian Empire was divided into provinces, and their governors or high officials were called satraps. There were 120 of them, and they had three supervisors over them. Daniel was one of those. As usually happens when power is transferred from one government to another, there was continuity in the lower levels of the government, in the bureaucracy. And Daniel was one of those high officials that the 120 satraps were answerable to. And they did not appreciate that state affairs the slightest. Now, why would that have been? Why would Daniel come to be so resented by the officials underneath him? The description in the opening verses of chapter 6 tells us that he became distinguished above all other high high officials and satraps, that an excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. They could find no fault of ground or complaint against him. He was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Here was a rarity, an honest man of integrity in high political office. Daniel's job was to supervise the satraps, 
to keep them accountable so that the king might suffer no loss. He was a guard against corruption, and he could not be corrupted. He was favored by the king. He cramped the satrap style, and what was worse, he was this old Jewish guy, one of the exiles from Judah. All which led to the simple conclusion, something had to be done about him. And since they could find no fault in him using any other grounds, some indiscretion, some failure, some evidence, no matter how small, that Daniel wasn't as squeaky clean as he made himself out to be, they came up with a foolproof plan. Whatever they could do to get him out of the way, they knew it had to involve the law of his God. They knew that the only way that they could get him to disobey the king would be to force him to choose between obeying earthly kings and obeying the heavenly king. Because based on everything they knew about Daniel, the evidence of his life, the only option they had was to turn his own integrity against him. And because they knew that the king respected Daniel, they would have to resort to subterfuge in order to get him out of the way. And so they came up with a plan to get the king to pass a decree that would force Daniel to choose between denying his God or disobeying the king. That plan was a decree that would be enforced for 30 days. During that month, all religious activity had to be directed through the king. Now, we don't know the reasoning that the satraps used to convince King Darius to sign this decree, but for whatever reason, Darius was convinced to make the decree, which according to the laws of the Medes and Persians could never be revoked. Think about the tactics that Satan was using to attack God's servant. This was persecution. No one would deny it. But it's important for us to note that this was not persecution at the king, hands of the king himself. The king was a victim of the conspiracy of the satraps just as much as Daniel was. The king had no quarrel with Daniel. He had no reason to persecute Daniel because of his faith. And you can see later on how the king felt completely trapped by the decree that he made. And what's more, was, what was the motivation for this persecution? Was it the fact that Daniel believed in a specific religion? The fact that he worshipped the wrong god? Is that what led to his persecuting? Was it because of his faith? The fact is, religion was just an excuse for the satraps. They had a vendetta, a personal grudge against Daniel. The animosity was the result of Daniel's faith. That's true. Because Daniel was living his faith. He was a man of integrity. Because he was honest and faithful, and because he just didn't go along with the flow, and perhaps because of envy. Because Daniel was blessed because of his faithfulness. He was honored because of his honesty, because he was trustworthy. And those characteristics of Daniel were the fruit of his faith. He practiced what he preached. He did not compromise. Now Daniel faced persecution for doing good. The satraps were willing tools of the evil one, and they had their own reasons for wanting to see Daniel dead. And King Darius was an unwilling tool of the evil one. He did not want anything bad to happen to Daniel, but even so, his decree, poorly thought out, was not a deliberate attack on God's people. It was being used by Satan to attack God's kingdom. The enemy is subtle. His attacks can be indirect. His tactics can make use of people who may be working as his tool without realizing it. We are dealing with a crafty enemy, and we need to be aware of his wiles and stand firm in our faith regardless of the situation in which we find ourselves. And that leads us to our second point, Daniel's faithfulness. 
And that's exactly what Daniel does. The decree comes down. The satrap's trap had been sprung. And Daniel was a consistent man. Three times a day he would pray in the direction of Jerusalem. And when that decree was implemented, Daniel didn't do anything special. He didn't do anything extraordinary or unusual. He simply continued to do what he'd always done. And he did it knowing what the results would be. Daniel knew that the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. What could have Daniel done instead? He could have said, well, it's only 30 days. Surely I can take a break and God will understand. After all, I've been doing this for 80-some years, and I'll do it again once this month has passed. So one month won't matter that much. There's a lot that I could accomplish yet, and if I get killed for disobeying this edict, I won't be able to do it. Yes, Daniel could have chosen to obey the edict, and he could very easily have justified that obedience, but he didn't. Or he could have made some slight changes to his regular practice. His regular practice was to very publicly and obviously pray to God, getting down on his knees, using that very specific prayer posture, that humble, respectful posture of prayer that makes it very clear that a person is praying. He did it in front of his window, where everyone passing by could see it. He didn't do it in order to be seen by others, but in order to do what King Solomon had said to do in 1 Kings 8, in his prayer on the occasion of the dedication of the temple. If they sin against you, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent, and plead with you in the land of their captors, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea. But surely, for the sake of peace, for the sake of what others might say or do, he could have stopped with the kneeling for a month. After all, this practice of praying three times a day in the direction of Jerusalem was not an express command of God. It was not an absolute requirement of God's law. Daniel could have decided to stop with the praying in front of the window three times a day for a short period of time. He knew very well that that posture of prayer and the place of prayer were not the important things. What matters is the heart. He could have prayed in secret, and he could have even continued to do it three times a day, and he could have avoided trouble. He could have appeared to be obeying the king's edict, and when a month would pass by quickly anyways. But he didn't. He knew that he had to honor God rather than man. He knew that the decree was unjust, and for whatever reason it was implemented, he knew that the Lord's claim on him far outweighed whatever claim a human decree had over his actions and his behavior. And so, he continued to do what he had done faithfully over the decades. He remained faithful and entrusted himself to God, as Peter went on to write in 1 Peter 4 verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that is what exactly what Daniel did. And that leads us to our third point, Daniel's faithfulness. He knew what disobeying the king's edict would mean for him. He had received no message from God saying, don't worry, I'll deliver you from these lions. 
Like his three companions before, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. He knew that God could either deliver him in a miraculous way, or he could suffer and die a horrible death. But his primary allegiance was to the God of heaven and his decrees. His obedience was to God's law, the truly unchanging law of the God, unchanging God of heaven. And not to the changing decrees of men who imagine that their word is law and that their decrees are unalterable. If that obedience would lead to death, so be it. Daniel certainly knew the words of Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, and he lived out that confession. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And so, Daniel knew the truth of the Lord Jesus' message in Luke 12, verse 4 through 5, even though he lived hundreds of years before the Incarnation. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. The king, whose edict could not be rescinded, became frantic. More, there's more than a little irony here. After all, the powerful king, whose word was law, could do nothing to overturn a decree that he did not want to enforce. He tries all day to find a way to rescind the decree, but can't find a loophole. So, however reluctantly, he executes a sentence, having Daniel cast into the den of lions, marking the seal on the door with a signet ring to ensure that the execution is carried out, and he returns to his palace. There he spends a sleepless night fasting before returning to the lion's den early in the morning, and he appears to have some faint hope. Daniel had obviously been a shining beacon of light in Darius's kingdom. He had borne witness to the living God, and Darius had obviously been impressed by Daniel and his God, if not converted. And so, as it says in verse 20, as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, declaring, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And what happened next must have shocked and amazed everyone who was present, because from the depths of the lion's den comes the voice of Daniel. He addresses Darius respectfully and explains how the Lord delivered him, sending an angel to shut the mouth of the lions. And they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel's obedience to the Lord had led him to disobey the king's edict. But that open act of disobedience did not make him guilty of a sin against the fifth commandment. He declares his innocence, not only his innocence before God's law, but also his innocence before the king. No harm was found on him because he had trusted in God. And so the tables were turned. The men who had put King Darius in this impossible situation in order to get rid of Daniel faced the execution that they had tried to inflict on Daniel. They, together with their children and their wives, were brought and cast into the den of lions. And those lions who, whose mouths had been stopped by God's angels to protect his faithful servant overpowered their victims and tore them to pieces before they even reached the bottom of the den. Justice, real justice, divine justice was done. The faithfulness of God's servant was rewarded and the treachery of these wicked men was punished. 
And we know when the righteous suffer because they refuse to be conformed to worldly things, things do not always work out this way. There are many examples throughout history of faithful believers who have suffered horrible deaths because they refuse to renounce their faith. There's the famous story of Polycarp, who was burned at the stake in the arena for refusing to renounce King Jesus, who declared before his death that the Lord Jesus had been faithful to him throughout his life. So how could he possibly deny his Savior now? There's the story of Guido de Breth, the writer of our Belgian Confession, who was hanged for the sake of his faith, but who continually proclaimed the gospel even to his captors and accusers in prison. These men were not rescued from the mouths of the lions that attacked them. They suffered horribly and they died. But they, and many others like them, faced death with songs of praise on their lips because they knew that in the end, the justice of God would prevail. And those who had so brutally persecuted God's people would ultimately face the wrath of God which is infinitely worse than the worst that a mere human can do. As the church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The evidence of church history, the evidence of the current state of the church in the world, proves the truth of these words. Righteous people suffer for the sake of the gospel, because the gospel is by very nature a threat to the powerful. The good news of King Jesus is a dangerous rival to the utopian false gospels of the totalitarians of this world. The message of the Lord Jesus Christ is understood as dangerous competition for people's loyalties and a danger to society. And so where the gospel is boldly proclaimed and faithful human dictators are afraid where the lordship of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, men who see themselves as lord and saviors feel the pressure. And where citizens of God's kingdom refuse to bend the knees to the gods of this world, they are declared to be enemies of the human race, enemies of the state, a danger to peace and security, people who put the world in danger because of their refusal to conform. But where Christians suffer for the sake of Christ, when they, with the apostles, can rejoice because they are worthy, counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5, verse 41. The world sees, and the seed is spread. The rock, not cut with human hands, continues to roll on. And as it rolls, it grows, and the kingdom of darkness is beaten back, even when it does its worst to snuff out the light. This is what happened to the Lord Jesus. The light shone in the darkness, but the darkness could not overcome it. The enemies of the Lord Jesus saw in him a threat to their position in the nation, to their program for national reform. And when his beaten and bloody body was put in the tomb, they thought they had won. But three days later, it became clear that the enemy had been defeated. The Lord's angel had, the Lord's angel had stopped the mouth of the lions, had given Daniel new life. But for Jesus Christ, the victory was so much greater. Death itself was defeated. And because of his death, the seed of the kingdom would continue to flourish as it does today. And so we can be encouraged and challenged by the story of Daniel persecuted. Daniel at prayer. Daniel in the lion's den. 
challenged, first of all, because we need to ask ourselves some very hard questions individually and as a church. The first thing we need to ask is, is our witness to the world as clear as Daniel's was? Daniel's record was absolutely clean. There was nothing obvious or hidden in Daniel's life that his enemies could use against him. They knew exactly how Daniel would respond if his ability to pray to his God were to be hindered. Can the same be said for us? And if we were confronted with that choice that faced Daniel, how would we respond? Would we just go with the flow, not make waves, and then justify our lack of radical faithfulness by using any number of excuses or reasons? Brothers and sisters, these are not theoretical questions for us. When we make decisions about how we respond to government decrees, these are the kind of things that we must seriously and honestly consider. But that's the challenge. That's with the, but with that challenge comes that great encouragement. Daniel stood firm and boldly continued to worship God even when threatened with death. And he did all this even though, as we read in Hebrews 11, he did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Our assurance, our hope, our confidence can be all the greater because we live on the other side of the cross. We have not only that wonderful example of Daniel, we have the example of Christ, which is so much more than just an example to follow. It is actually the means in which we can face the lions today. Like many of our brothers and sisters in the world today, we may one day have to face death ourselves for the sake of our faith. And even now, on a daily basis, we face challenges that are not as drastic as death, but are more subtle and perhaps more dangerous to us spiritually. But in Christ, we can face those challenges. We can rejoice in our suffering, and we can joyfully obey God, come what may, because we know that even if we aren't rescued from the mouths of the lions in this life, we will have been faithful in what we have been given, and we will receive God's gracious reward, which is eternal. We can and must dare to be like Daniel, because Daniel's God, who stopped the mouths of the lions, is the God that defeated death and the grave, and he is our God. Amen. Let us now sing of... Hymn 53, stanzas 1 through 4.